Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. My name is Christine Delamarter. And my name is Jeremy Swingle. And this is episode 69 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 69, we are going to be talking predominantly about coaching. And as you heard from our normal intro spiel, we are very pleased to welcome to the podcast Christine, and we are pleased to welcome back to the podcast, uh, Jeremy, and they uh, are, are fresh off of their various victories at the uh, internationals meet uh, just a, a few days ago, week and a half, no, week and something ago or whatever. So uh, we're going to be talking about things related to coaching in terms of how to recruit quizzers, how to motivate quizzers, how to handle tactical strategies in terms of practices and preparing for meets, and the strategies that you might employ at meets of different sh uh, shapes and sizes. But before we get into that, we're going to be doing a little bit of a statistics overview uh, for internationals, and we'll also be fielding a listener question that actually comes from a ruling that took place at internationals. Uh, so the, for the first thing, we're going to talk about statistics, and who better to talk about statistics than our very own Scott? Yeah, so I was interested in statistics because this is the first ever virtual internationals and we're, we want to call it differently because it is not internationals it is similar but different and I wanted to look at how the stats were similar and over the past so 2004 through 2019 which would be 16 years the average internationals individual average has been 12.98 across all quizzers all years and this year it was 1490 14.93 so 15% higher than the last 16 years if we're looking at the percentage of quizzers that scored a 40 or above, um, usually it is 3.8%, and this year it was 5.3%, so a little bit higher there as well. Um, moving on to team scoring, over the past, let's see here, six years, sixth place after prelims for teams has averaged 10.95 points per quiz, at this year's internationals, it was 10.86, so in essence identical. And ninth place after prelims over the past six years has been averaging 9.33 points per quiz, and this year it was 9.29 points. So again, almost exactly the same. And there are many there are many differences that could have contributed to statistical differences. There will always be ebbs and flows from year to year, given like. Do you have an uncharacteristically high number of juniors and seniors? Um, we did seven prelims this year instead of 12 normally. I think that would cause at least individual averages to be higher and maybe team scoring as well. Um, I think over time, at least everyone comes closer to the middle. Um, if you, The fewer prelims you have, the easier it is for one team to like race out way ahead and maybe one team to have a, a string of really poor quizzes. Um, but over... As you get closer and closer to 12, and if you ever did more, um, I think you'd see a lot more congregation in kind of the, medi the median in the middle. There was also 75 quizzers, so we were missing some districts. The most notable one was Northeastern. They're a strong district, and so them not being there would drag numbers down by a little bit. And then it was also a virtual meet, so... Um, I am guessing that on average, quizzers got more information per jump than they would at normal, normal internationals, but I don't know that. And that is the end of my internationals overall stats breakdown. 
I would say that you are very you are very correct about the I think quizzers got anywhere between a tiny bit more and a whole lot more of information depending upon uh, what room they were in. But yeah, that was my that was my personal observation. All right, well, let's uh, move on to our a uh, question from our listener uh, real quick here. It comes uh, from, uh, how do you pronounce the quizzer's name? I believe it was Sesame, like the Sesame. seed. So like the seed. All right. And it's a, a ruling question that actually came up at uh, internationals. And I'll just uh, read what the uh, writer or listener uh, uh, wrote to us. So hi, Scott Griffin. I'm curious about two opposite rulings that happened during the weekend. The first one, we had a quizzer who jumped on a ref before the chapter number was out. It was ruled a foul and everybody agreed. Then during con finals, Noah jumped uh, before the chapter number and after a challenge. It was ruled as an error because he had definite information, uh, the book that it was from. Which way is right? Both seem to make sense and the reasoning is solid on both sides. All right, so Scott, what are your thoughts on this one? So I am a little bit behind, but let's see here. Fouls from the rule book. So... During a reference question or a quote question, if any light goes on after the quizmaster calls question and before they begin to read the chapter number. So I think that that's very clear that if a quizzer jumps on the book name, um, they have jumped after the word question um, or after the quizmaster calls question, but before the chapter number has has been read discernibly or audibly, um, and that should be a foul. And there is no difference in the rule book drawn between material years with a single book and material years with multiple books. Yeah. And there are two other spots in the rule book that, that, well, they don't apply to this situation, but they could be quasi seen to apply, but they don't actually, um, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Uh, And I'll read those two. Uh, One is if a quizzer's light comes on after a question has been called and before the question has discernibly begun, a foul will be called. And then number two, uh, when uh, electronic equipment is used, which of course we always do, if any light goes on after the quiz master calls question and before he begins to read the question. Uh, but the, the section that, that Scott uh, quoted is, is much more specific and directly applicable to the situation. So yeah, there's no rule in CMA rule book about multi-book seasons having any change to this uh, practice. Uh, and so... If you're in that situation where it's, you know, uh, in a challenge and being counted as an error, how should we respond? Well, it's like, you know, number one challenge, which happened. Um, I don't recall the specific challenge, uh, even though I was that it. Did, did they say this was in finals in con final? Yeah. During con finals. Why don't I remember this? I was live tweeting. Maybe I was feverishly typing at the time this was going on. Um, I don't <laughs> I don't have a strong I was live tweeting what was going on. So I don't I. Oddly, I don't have a strong recollection of this taking place. Um, but uh, basically, the challenge would would happen, and then following the ruling, then it should be uh, it should be protested, and that's just sort of the natural way that we would handle these sorts of things. But I do want to sort of raise this as a um, uh, you'll forgive the term. I want to call this a UC to me, uh, which is a, you know, concatenation of UC to me, which comes from a, um, you know, that Lassie television show that was from like the mid 1950s and ran until like the early 1970s or something. And at the end of every show, there was this moment where some adult would say, well, you see to me and then say some sort of moral of the story. Well, the you see to me for this situation 
is recognizing that I think, at least from my perspective, that the rule book can be misunderstood or there we can have misunderstandings about the rule book. And I think those misunderstandings come in three distinct flavors. Number one, we misremember what's there. So there's a rule and we just remember it incorrectly. Uh, number two, we forget about something that's in the rule book. Uh, we just sort of forget that the rule exists at all. And then number three, which applies, I think, here, is that we falsely remember something that actually isn't in the rule book. Well, it, as it turns out, the first two misunderstandings are actually generally fairly easy to fix, right? You just reread the rule book and you'll usually spot things that fall into the first two categories and you can correct your, your memory about those things. The third thing is much more difficult to fix because it, it's, it's very easy to believe something that isn't actually in the rule book, reread the rule book and actually not necessarily be confirmed confronted about the fact that I'm actually believing something that's not actually in the rule book. So it's very, very hard to fix. This actually turns out that biblical misunderstandings, I think, come in these same three flavors. So really the only way, I think, to fully address item number three is the collaboration that happens with other people. Talk about rule books, uh, talk about the Bible, talk about scripture, and, you know, have these sorts of uh, things come up because, as they say uh, in scripture, iron sharpens iron. All right, and on that inevitable bombshell, I want to very quickly move on to the bulk of this episode where we're going to be talking about coaching. And of course, we have on this call uh, four people who are, uh, you know, have a non-trivial amount of coaching experience. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, as for myself, I coached the NSA teams for a number of years, I think a full uh, cycle yeah, I think a full cycle or maybe longer than a full cycle or something like that. And then I coached uh, Great West and, and uh, internationals teams. Scott has, of course, coached Great West teams and internationals teams. Uh, and Jeremy, of course, uh, has coached Great West and internationals teams. He also coached uh, coached and will be coaching uh, at Trinitas, his uh, home church. And Christine uh, has coached at Great West and internationals. And of course, also Jeremy and Christine coached at internationals, uh, in addition to internationals. Christine also coached at, uh, and continues to co coach at her home church in Madras, but she also coached at Grove City Alliance Church, which is part of uh, WPA. So you've got a fairly, you know, good group of folks here on this call. And I wanted to open it up uh, and sort of I'm going to kind of sit back a little bit and just sort of ask questions and absorb knowledge from these, you know, three great coaches that we have on a call. And the, I'm going to sort of throw out this question and see where people go with it. The first one is, as a coach, one of the things that you have to do uh, and really important to do is recruit quizzers into your quiz program. From your guys' experience, like what works, what doesn't work, what do you do to recruit quizzers? So I can start to answer this. Um, I have found that talking to quizzers directly is very helpful. We will have announcements in front of church that the quizzing season is starting and that um, things are happening, but I just know all the kids in my church. And so when kids are coming up or new kids come to the church, I kind of embarrass my own children by how much I try to encourage kids to try out quizzing and um, I definitely do it with no strings attached. Come see what it's like, come to practices, come to some of our fun stuff. Um, and by trying to make it fun, it can really help to motivate quizzers to be interested. And I've also found that the quizzers themselves are the best recruiters. If they are excited about it, if they're enjoying it, 
and they tell their friends to do it, they're much more likely to try it out. Yeah, I think existing quizzers um, getting their friends to try quizzing is probably the best way. That's the only way that got me into quizzing. Lots of adults tried to get me into quizzing, and I just kind of ignored them. Um, but when my good friend decided to do it, he's like, you want to try this with me? And so I tried it with him. Um, so actually, that wasn't an existing quizzer, but it was a friend of mine, and we decided to try it out together. Um, and I think that's a great way to to recruit if you have those sorts of quizzers and youth in your church. Um, kind of beyond that, I think parents are an integral part in having kids quiz. Um, you get all kinds of kids, and I know a lot of families where the parents have said, you're going to at least try this for one year. Um, and more often than not, a kid will stick with it. Um, and then, as Christine said, if you know the kids in your church, direct contact is is really great because um, yeah, because you can just talk to them directly. I have a little bit of a different perspective, I think, on this because at my home church, we have a very young congregation, a lot of uh, <clears throat> like young kids. So one thing that we found that's a little unique to our church's situation is since we don't have yet a lot of kids who are eligible, is we try to talk about quizzing a lot just to random families of younger kids. And talk about like, oh, hey, what were you doing this last weekend? Oh, we were at the Bible quiz meet. Um, or recently at internationals, we encouraged some members of the church to tune in on Zoom to uh, watch the meet. And uh, I got texts from some of them after the quiz saying congrats, you know, um, on the performance. So, And some of those people didn't even have kids. But what we've tried to do is create a culture at our church where people are aware that the ministry exists. Um, and that some parents who have older kids who are about to become eligible are already thinking about it as a possibility because sometimes it's very difficult to to sell, especially to busy parents. Their kids are doing so many things already to sell something like quizzing. But if it's been in their minds for years and they've seen the effects as, you know, uh, Anna and I have been members at our church and, you know, been involved in things with the youth and been involved in things with these families, um, then I think that makes them a little more interested in the ministry rather than just cold calling them, so to speak to talk about quizzing. <laughs> yeah. Well, in my experience as, uh, as at the church level, uh, as a coach, I didn't really do much. I did. Well, that's not true. I did a little bit of recruiting directly to, uh, quizzers, but I'm kind of an introvert. And so like, you know, youth were kind of scary, uh, you know, kind of thing. And I wasn't actually that much older than the youth at the time anyway. Um, uh, but we did a little bit of, of outreach into like the, the youth ministry program. But I think the, really the only thing that we did was, uh, we talked to the, our pastors of, uh, at, at the church and getting the pastors to either be generally comfortable with the, the idea of quizzing or even better to actually promote quizzing on our behalf, uh, seemed to do a lot. So we, uh, we originally had a youth pastor who was fairly pro quizzing. We then had a youth pastor who is a little bit more tepid about quizzing, but we had a senior pastor and actually a, a pair of senior pastors who were I, somewhere between strongly pro and very, very strongly pro quizzing. And so we would have announcements uh, in front of the entire congregation. This was a fairly decent sized church at the time. Uh, we would have announcements about what was happening with uh, the quiz meets and where we placed on quiz meets. And at the time, we didn't really place that well, but we still had announcements, uh, you know, and, and that got interest uh, at both the uh, youth level and at the parent level. And that certainly helped us grow. I think when I 
started, we, we had two teams and we closed out. Uh, when I left, uh, we had about four teams or, or so. And, and I think, you know, having that collaboration with the pastors, at least for our example, was important. From your guys' experience, how important are, you know, how important is pastoral support to your program or in your experience? I, I think especially for a youth pastor, it's important that they at least support it. Um, in my experience, senior pastors haven't been involved almost at all. Um, but if a youth pastor at least treats it as an acceptable part of their church and not um, a competing ministry to Awana or youth group or other sorts of things, then I think it's great. I think it's a complementary ministry in a church. I think it's very helpful the youth pastor and the pastor support it uh, because most of our youth group does quizzing, and if the youth events are scheduled at the same time as quiz practice or, or quiz meets, then it does become a conflict of, of interests. And I have been very uh, grateful to our youth pastors worked with me um, with scheduling so that the kids can do both. Yeah, I think circumstances are different depending on the church you're at. Uh, at the church I grew up at and quizzed for, uh, there was one circumstance where we had a new youth pastor who, I guess he wasn't hostile to quizzing, but his kind of he he didn't see why it should be a focus. And um, our coach at the time, the person who was running the program, figured out that this new youth pastor was a very competitive person. So she just invited him to a meet. And he came to a meet, and then the rest was history. He loved quizzing um, because he saw how competitive it was. So I, I think, I don't know, I, I, it's different circumstances. And it was really nice to have that pastor on our side, that youth pastor. Um, he was very supportive of the team uh, once he kind of saw what it was all about. So I think it's important to speak about what things you know are about to the youth pastor. And, in, of course, in my circumstance, again, I'm in a small church. We don't have a super formated, uh, is that the right word? Super formed youth program yet. It's pretty informal at the point. So for us, uh, the support of the elders at our church is crucial. And so from day one, we've been talking to our elders about that, and we're lucky to have their support. Um, but So I think it is important, certainly, to have youth pastor support if that's applicable. And uh, senior pastor support is also important. And it's good, good to have a whole church that just understands that quizzing is something that most of our youth do. It's, it's a good option for most of the young people in our church to learn how to memorize scripture. Beyond what we've already talked about, do you guys have any suggestions for other coaches around how to get quizzers excited about the program you were talking or, or how to get them more excited is probably a better way of saying it. The, you talked about the idea of quizzers are the best recruiters of other quizzers. So how do you get the quizzers you have to be even more excited than they already are in the program? I think you have to give them a broad set of experiences because all quizzers are going to be motivated differently. There are going to be some, like myself, who I just want to quiz and beat everybody. And so you're going to want to have quizzes at practice and, I mean, take me to meets. Um, there are other quizzers who you want to make sure that there are fun things to do on the drive to meets. Or th there are times at quiz practice that are not 100% quizzing. Um, and just keep an eye to all the different personalities and motivations that you're going to have. Because what you're trying to do is whatever the baseline motivation to memorize is you're trying to increase up upon that baseline. You're not trying to bring everyone to the exact same spot. Yeah. To piggyback off Scott's idea that there's different levels at which people are, are incentivized to appreciate quizzing. 
when I was a quizzer, especially when I was really young, maybe through middle school, I really enjoyed the competitive side of quizzing. And I was a social kid, but I was pretty shy at the time. And I remember my coach at one meet because she was worried that just the quizzers within our church's team were only spending time with each other. She incentivized us. I think, I think she gave us a candy bar or something. And she told us that we had to meet one friend from each grade level. So sixth, seventh, all the way up through 12th um, and write their name on the on the sheet and we had to make friends with them and then we would get like a candy bar and that worked as a seventh grader or whatever i was i made friends from like a bunch of different churches and so that was one like example of even though i was there to compete there's other levels at which i was interested in quizzing and my coach actively did something to encourage fellowship with other believers and that was really impactful and ended up being other than the competition one of the most important things about quizzing for me was the friends i made so I think that's huge, is, is finding ways to encourage your quizzers to be friends with each other and with other quizzers from other churches. This last year, we uh, decided to have quiz practice at our house. And um, so I just would bring the kids to our house after church, and we would have lunch and have practice. And the kids just loved it. They didn't want to leave. <laughs> um, and... I think that that helps to motivate them to invite more people, um, more kids to quiz. So I found that that was a great way just to get everybody involved and excited about quizzing. Christine, what do you do with your quizzers to help them memorize, it basically increase their the level or the amount of memorization that they do? That is a hard one. <laughs> uh, you definitely have different kids at um, very different levels. Some kids, it's hard to memorize one verse for the week, um, and then other kids memorize all the material. So uh, we would, I think having frequent practices once a week is good motivation because if they know a practice is coming up and there's they're going to be quizzing on it, they enjoy it a lot more and have a lot more fun when they can jump and answer questions. Um, and I would have the kids make their own goal for the week. If their goal was, I want to memorize a verse a day or you know, I want to memorize three verses or I want to memorize a whole chapter. They would have their own goal that they were trying to accomplish for the week. And I also, uh, the kids that did know more, I would make them quiz out. So, and then I would know what the kids who were still sitting there, which verses they knew so that I could specifically ask questions on that. Uh, the practice was a lot more fun for the kids when they could actually jump on verses they'd memorized. Cool. Jeremy, what do you, what kind of think, tricks do you use? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that I have any better answers than Christine. She's been at it a little longer than I have. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think having weekly goals that each individual quizzer sets that you expect them to follow through on. Because I don't, as a coach, I don't want to create an environment where quizzers have like a quota where they have to memorize a certain number of verses to be on the team. Uh, but I do think that it is reasonable to expect participants of quizzing to set their own goals and to reasonably follow through on them. You know, if one verse is missing, we didn't, you know, chastise our quizzers. But uh, that's that's my, been my strategy, and I think it's worked pretty well. Whatever the quizzer feels comfortable doing, have them set that goal, and then to some extent follow up on it. You know, did you actually memorize your verses? Quote a couple of them for me, etc. Uh, I think that's really helpful. Scott, when you were coaching like Great West, what were some things that you would do to help 
you know, your quiz, I mean, certainly by the time a, a quizzer is qualified for Great West, they're, they've already memorized, they've already sort of gotten into a pattern. But what were some things that you did to help them kind of boost to the next level? Well, one thing I did was um, I, I learned very quickly that you can't make kids study. Um, you might be able to make them study um, a small amount or minimum amount. But like when I've been coaching internationals, you can't you can't mandate anything. It's That's no fun. It doesn't work as motivation. It doesn't work as a way to get anything. <laughs> um, so what I always tried to do was just have have the discussion as a team about what do we want to do? Like, do we want to try to win? Um, and I And if the collective goal was like, yeah, we want to try to win, then I would lay it out for them what that requires. And I made it clear that I'm not going to be here every week saying like, did you do this? Oh, you're not on track. I kind of wanted to put it on the five of them saying like, you guys are a team. And if you want to accomplish this together and give yourself a chance to win, this is what's required. And it's going to take accountability among the five of you because I didn't want them to be doing it for me or like, oh, Scott's going to be disappointed. Like that's not useful. <laughs> like I want them to do it so that they could do it as five people. Um, and if at the end of the day they didn't study up to that level, then, you know, that's just what happened. But I think you kind of have to be fine with that. Um, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't sum it up very well at the end, but no, it's all well, right. I, think, I, I was going to add, sorry. I think another good thing at the great West internationals level that Scott was chatting about is that it's good to, have this sort of expertise that allows you to tell quizzers what they do and don't need to do in order to get certain results. And particularly for internationals, that's kind of the, the tenor I tried to go at is our, at our practices is not like, Oh, if you don't study this amount, then, you know, you're going to do terrible or whatever, or you're going to be a drag on the team. I never said anything to that degree, but I asked the quizzers themselves, you know, what do you, what do you want to jump on? What question types are your favorite? What would you like to do? And then I kind of laid out for them, this is what you need to do to be the most competitive at that type. You need to do this if you want to be good at multiple answers. You need to do this if you want to be you know, the best at finish the verses. And to a pretty significant extent, I think they just listened to what I said and took that as a challenge. Like, oh, this is what I need to do to get there. And that kind of goes along with what Scott was saying with you can't make them study, but you, I think you can sort of lay out if you talk to them and ask them what they want out of the quiz meet you can figure out a, a strategy to help them get there. And that's a huge thing that coaching can do, particularly if you're experienced at quizzing and know the ins and outs of it. You can help guide them to the things to study so that their study time is made the most of. Absolutely. Like, I would use my experience to provide focus and just make all, all the doing easier, um, but they still had to do it right? Because I, I can't memorize it for you. I can't study a list for you. But I can tell you like, oh, this is the proficiency level you're going to need to excel at this question type. Um, and this is what you shouldn't do. You know, you shouldn't put 20 minutes a day into each of the, the whatever, five question types, because then you're going to be non-competitive on all of them <laughs> once you get to internationals. Like I can, I can help guide um, that way and focus efforts and, oh, Sure, making a study list on a question type is great study, but you don't have the time or the ability to do that, but you still want to dig into the list to study it. Well, I can help you make a list. Um, and all of those surrounding things, I can help do and grease the skids for you. So what you're saying is you can lead a quizzer to a finish the verse list, but you can't make them memorize it. Exactly. <laughs> 
All right. So let's say I'm a, I'm a new coach. Uh, maybe I've, I've never coached before, or maybe I've only coached for like one season or something like that. You guys have a tremendous amount of coaching experience. Like Christine, what would we, what would be sort of like the top, you know, three, five things that you would want to make sure that I knew or understood as a new, as a new coach? Uh, well, first of all, having a good set of questions to work with think that will be pretty daunting if you've never really done quizzing or been a part of quizzing before or even knew how to start and I know that uh, Griffin with his uh, CBQZ that we can share our question list so that you know that part can be much easier for you so um, you know anyone who wants access to question list I'm happy to share um, and so that can make it a lot better and easier so you even have something to start with. And then having a good uh, just practice time to set aside to be with your kids and um, and to to go over questions and, and how to quiz and um, what the scripture means to them. Um, I like to ask my quizzers what their favorite verses are and making it applicable to their lives as well. Um, I think is a good place to start uh, with for a new coach who's just beginning with this. When you're preparing your team for a meet, let's say it's a younger team, maybe a first-time team that you've put together. Maybe some of the quizzers there have experienced quizzing before, but you're, uh, you know, let's say you've got two rookies and two folks who have been to at least a couple of quiz meets before. Um, but like, Jeremy, how would you prepare that team for their first uh, quiz at the first meet uh, and getting kind of getting them out the door, so to speak, in the best possible way? Yeah, I think it's important to set expectations appropriately. Uh, so if you've been practicing with just this team at your church, uh, particularly if you're a smaller church and there's not a bunch of other quizzers on other teams, it's good for your quizzers to know going in that like, hey, you, we should try to each get one question at this meet. Because that might be very difficult, even for well-studied rookies, to really get in there and get a question. It's important to set those expectations like, hey, there's going to be 12 quizzers jumping on any given question for most of the meet. And so that's tough. And some of these kids are much older than you like, and have been doing this for years. So we need to set those expectations for them and say, hey, I'm really proud of you guys if you just get up at all, even if you get it wrong. If you get one word off and I finish the verse, the points might not say it, but I'm actually really proud of that. And we'll get it next time. Like, we can work on this and, you know, you absolutely will, if you work at it, become like those veteran quizzers. So I think that's really, really good. Setting expectations is, is ideal. So kind of moving from there into, let's say, district level strategy, let's say you're, uh, you know, coaching a team and I mean, actually just be yourselves in, in whatever kind of context you want to be. What are some of, of the coaching strategies at a meet like in terms of I, there could be everything from tactical coaching uh, within a quiz itself like when do you pull subs when do you how do you respond to situations when do you call timeouts i mean to me it seems like one of the most important things at an actual you know in a quiz that you can do as a coach is call uh, a strategic timeout. What are sort of the do's and don'ts about when to call a timeout? What when does it work? When is it not such a good idea? Uh, what are sort of the strategies behind what you're doing there? One thing I would like to do is I always try to scheme ways for your least studied quizzers to score 
as much as they could. Because your your best studied quizzers are they're just going to score. They they need less of your help. Um, but for the team's sake, if you can scheme ways, and this 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 applies to whatever level, right? At the district level, um, if you have quizzers that know almost no material, maybe you want to try to prep them before the meet to learn four verses in a row from the same chapter where you know there's a bunch of unique words clustered, and you tell them like just be ready on interrogatives. Or you want to have them learn one quote question and say, listen for Hebrews chapter five um, or like give them whatever you deem as manageable. Um, because if your team in prelims trying to make a certain bracket, 30 points or three points from one question from your number four quizzer can be huge, right? If they get almost nothing. Um, and similarly, like that applies at the internationals level where everyone is more studied, but on a relative sense, your fourth and fifth quizzers are um, not going to average one question a quiz. And so you're scheming ways to like make it as easy as possible as you can for them. What are their specialties? Are there ways that I can hold back the, uh, the other members on the team on these to try to give a few chances to these fourth and fifth quizzers before I sub them out? So I always liked that challenge of trying to squeeze points out of um, – quizzers three four and five whichever level you're coaching yeah for sure and i think a large part i know we're talking about strategy but i I think a huge part of like a quizzers enthusiasm for quizzing just comes from getting that reinforcement from getting a question right their first question their second question so if you can teach you know your fourth or your fifth quizzer who is understudied just a few tricks (laughs) you know like oh hey this is the only finish the verse that starts with this one word or hey there's only one quote these two in this chapter and then they just nail it you know, it, that can really give a boost to their confidence. So that's that's also good just for long-term team building beyond at the meet itself. And it's also helpful to know if you have a quizzer who mentally really struggles if they've gone, like maybe they, they are really studied and they do average a good average, but um, they can go through long spells of not winning jumps or getting errors and getting really down on themselves. Well, maybe you want to kind of try to reserve um, the bo- team jumping bonus questions for them, right? Tell your top quizzer or your you know, your your other top quizzers like, hey, hold back and let this quizzer get it because it gets them in a much better um, mindset going forward. As far as timeouts go, because uh, Griffin mentioned that, I see there's, there's I think, I can think of at least three reasons off the top of my head why you might want to call a timeout. Uh, one of them is simply to encourage your quizzers if they're feeling down. Maybe they had a really rough error. They were only one word off. Uh, and that's particularly uh, relevant with rookies and newer teams, younger teams, as we've been saying. Um, so just to encourage your team, I think it's usually good to have at least one timeout a quiz. You don't need to be the one to call it, of course. The other coaches can call timeouts. But just to have some point in the middle of the quiz to talk to your quizzers and encourage them. Second reason where I think you might want to do that is to reorient your strategy. So let's say this is especially common when you're on the last few questions of the quiz. Maybe you're on question 19 and you realize, hey, if question 19 is a third quizzer bonus and question 20 is a fourth quizzer bonus, then we win the quiz. Otherwise, we don't win. Well, then that's something that your quizzers should be aware of. You should handle all the scoring math yourself. They shouldn't have to worry about that. So you're the one who needs to tell them, hey, this is how we can still win this quiz if it comes down to it. Uh, And the third reason that this might apply a little more to the international level, but I think it's good to call a timeout to reduce another team's momentum. So if it's question four and one team has gotten all three of them with like jumps that your team should be beating, then call a timeout. Don't let that like continue without telling your team, hey, let's get in there. Let's let's, you know, cut into that momentum and be competitive in this quiz. I think that can be a super useful 
way to call a timeout. So t- speaking of internationals, um, Christine was the head coach of the internationals uh, roster and put together, you know, the internationals lineup and, and you know, sub strategy and so forth. Well, at least for, for one of the two PNW teams. But Christine, in terms of like how you, you know, organized, you know, say team one and team two, you had, you know, the top 10 quizzers. How did you decide to kind of organize the teams into sort of team one and team two? What were sort of the thoughts going through your head as to what would make a better, you know, set of teams? And how does that differ at, say, internationals versus, say, like organizing the Madras teams? Yes, organizing the teams can be a challenge. Um, uh, For internationals, uh, I wanted, we wanted one team to be able to be competitive uh, in the top nine, and so um, we had a few practices to see how the different kids were continuing to study, continuing to memorize their knowledge of the material, and how fast they were jumping, and how um, closely they were jumping to the right timing in order to get the jumps and get the question correct. Um, and so we came up with the, I came up with the top four that I believed would would do well and be able to represent well um, in the quiz meet. Uh, and, and then I had, did have somewhat of a difficult time trying to pick uh, the, the fifth team mate uh, because I knew that they probably would sub quite a bit. Um, but we just had so many, so many good kids <laughs> from our district that kept studying even though it went virtual and really knew the material that, um, my job was pretty easy because I think anyone that I would have picked as that fifth person would have done a good job uh, team to be competitive as well, which um, I think we were able to do uh, just because we had so many kids that, that studied well and knew the material and surprised me when we got to the actual of, of how well they ended up doing. And that is different from um, at our district, at our church level, for trying to determine the teams um, can be difficult as well. I have my own two kids who study very hard, know all the verses, and um, they need someone else on their team in order to even be competitive in the top nine at our district. Um, and I've had a hard time getting other kids to to be that consistent, to come to, to be able to come to all the meets. Um, and my kids prefer to be on a team with each other. And so that's kind of how we determine that at our district, le- at our church level, because um, they have put in a lot of work and they want to be on a team with each other that I've allowed that to happen. It does make it hard for the other teams that um, maybe don't have as many quizzers that know all the material, um, but we are getting more that are excited about it and are studying. So that makes it exciting for uh, future years. At internationals, I think um, the subbing strategy, do we want to talk about subbing strategy right now, Griffin? Yeah, go for it. I think it's really, it can, there are many theories or ways to go about it, but the way that I've always found um, or the, the model that I've looked at it is you're going to have one or two quizzers that you kind of don't want to leave the stage. Um, They're going to be in play for two correct questions every single quiz, um, and you just kind of always want them there because maybe they're good at all types or more than two types, or um, you're just going to leave them on the stage. And then among the rest, you kind of almost look for um, the quizzer that's the least 
the most kind of one trick, right? Maybe they know one question type. Um, and you kind of want to start the quiz with them on the stage so that that question type doesn't go by without them getting um, having an opportunity to win that jump. Um, and so because of that, you might have a quizzer that's not one of your top few but is better, like can be competitive at more than one question type and may end up quizzing less than a quizzer that knows only one question type because of how you're trying to hunt out those question types in a quiz. So obviously, I mean, I don't know how I, what I would do if a quizzer is a um, quote question specialist and the first eight questions of a quiz go by without a quote because I know that quotes are coming. <laughs> um, but I also know that at this point I'm kind of, I'm kind of pot, not pot committed, but it's probably going to be that this quizzer is going to be in for the rest of the quiz if I want them in for quote questions. And you're, you do want to balance it because um, even getting, not thinking about any concept of fairness and do I want all quizzers to have some time in a quiz, I think it's just not good mentally for a quizzer to sit out a whole quiz, right? Um, you kind of need to be in the game to keep yourself sharp. But I was, I'm interested if other, what others think of my idea that a quizzer that is bet, is is competitive at more than one question type, but not a ton, might actually quiz less at internationals than a quizzer who um, is really only competitive at one question type. So, yeah, that's actually interesting you say, Scott, because I took the opposite strategy with PNW1 at internationals. I had uh, one quizzer who I thought was really excellent at one particular question type, um, and my strategy uh, was actually to keep him out of the quiz because my the other two on the team who weren't the captain and the co-captain were good at a wide range of question types. And the fifth quizzer was too, um, but I really thought he was going to be able to nail those, those finish the verses. So I actually subbed him out to begin and found any way possible to get him in immediately uh, so that the finish the verses didn't go by. And then, of course, if questions one, two, three came by and two of them were finished the verses, I'd get him in because I knew I could rely on him to get a finish of the verse. Um, so I took the opposite strategy, and I think one reason that worked well is because of the rule that we didn't need to call a timeout at internationals in order to sub. I think that really helped with that, because I was able to just throw people in and out without having to use my timeouts. And one strategy that I adopted was if a quizzer got an error, I would consider subbing them out right away early in the quiz, uh, just because I didn't want them to get a second error and get minus 10 on our team's second error when we could have another quizzer get that and have it be a free error. So I was constantly switching really four members of the team, but in particular the three who weren't captain and co-captain, just constantly throwing them in and out in a lot of quizzes just because I wanted to have the maximum opportunity possible of getting those bonuses and of not getting the minus on the errors earlier in the quiz. And I, and I did it by doing that opposite strategy. Is I put the generalists in first, and then based on how the questions were shaking down in the first 10, then I would throw the fifth quizzer in, make sure he could swoop in and get one, and then I'd you know maybe sub him out and put the other back in. Yeah, well, I mean, from my perspective, at internationals uh, in particular, in contrast to internationals normally, uh, we actually had a majority of the teams uh, not have five quizzers, uh, but both P and W teams had five, and there were other there were other teams that had five quizzers, but they they were in the minority. 
I, I strongly believe that having that fifth quizzer was a massive advantage, uh, to any team that, that had five quizzers that were, you know, competitive. Uh, those, those five, that fifth person was, was a huge, uh, factor in our placement ultimately. Yeah. The fifth person's a huge advantage, uh, just in general. And I think it was especially stronger because of the timeout rule at this meet, which I'm not sure what the thought process was behind the rule. It was a fine rule, uh, but it did give, I think, an especial advantage to five-person teams. I think it was logistics-driven, right? Yeah, it was. In, I, it just came out of my head. I, I'll, I'll take credit for the rule or blame for the rule. It's my fault. Um, yeah, it was really entirely around logistics, uh, trying to reduce the headaches uh, from timeouts. And in fact, actually, originally, uh, there weren't. I mean, this is before internationals, but in the first incantation of uh, virtual quizzing, there were no timeouts because we hadn't figured out how to, we hadn't figured out how we were going to be able to support uh, timeouts technologically. Uh, and then once we figured that out, we implemented uh, them. I, it was either that our second district meet or maybe the the inter district meet that we did, the third one that PNW was involved in. I forget exactly when they showed up, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it was really just a holdover from originally not not even being able to have timeouts at all. Well, I'm going to lead into two more subtopics on subs. No pun intended. Um, I think that. There is, as as has been stated, there is a big advantage to having a five-person team over a four-person team at a meet like this where everyone is studied up and can contribute. Um, and I'm interested in what people would think about switching to four-person teams purely because of the coaching and logistics overhead as one idea. Um, and the other extreme idea is not requiring a substitution um, to have a sub in a world where five-person teams remain. I think, and my thoughts are, in a world where five-person teams remain, which I, be- I think is my preference, um, I would love for there not to be a limit on subs, but I see a massive logistics overhead of the time it takes a quizzer to come up to the stage. Um, even if no one at the officials table has to like remark anything or change a name or anything like that, I think quizzes can drag because... Um, I think Jeremy's strategy is exactly what teams would do is sub very, very, very often. And we would see something similar to what has happened in major league baseball, where you bring in a specific right-handed pitcher or a left-handed pitcher for one batter and then keep switching very, very often. And that has become more and more often over time. I think in a world where you didn't need a timeout to, to sub, we might see subs every question, especially starting at like question 13 or 12. I think we're talking, yeah, we're talking about two different things to the internet quizzing versus real life quizzing. Um, I think the subbing is very different and in real life quizzing, there actually is a rule about if you've just taken someone out, you can't put them back in within so many questions. Um, not only, and also you need a timeout in order to sub people in and out. Um, and so um, I think in real life, it, it, it does slow things down, especially with, with timeouts uh, versus over the Internet. It's a lot quicker to just have someone jump back in. Um, and it does change the strategy, especially at the internationals level. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of torn on this because on the one hand, I think it's the best quizzing experience for quizzers not to be subbed in and out. But on the other hand, as a coach, I really like the five person. Like, I like getting to 
make these strategic decisions and talk with the captains about, hey, what do you think? What do you think about subbing this person in now? I really like that element of it. It's fun. But it does did break my heart a little bit at internationals because I feel like I had five just champion quizzers who did well the whole time. And I felt terrible saying like, hey, you just got a question. Now leave. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like it's really what I felt like, um, which isn't exactly how it would get done at a real internationals because you wouldn't always feel like calling that time out right away. But there definitely was an element of like, wow, you did great. Now you don't get to have fun and quiz. Um, you know, I, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it did break my heart a little bit not getting to see all five of the talented quizzers on my team always getting to answer. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I could be persuaded to a four-person team perspective. Not I don't. I would not want to increase it to like five. Uh, obviously, we have benches, so that's a logistical problem. But I also just think that's too many people jumping. But uh, four-person teams without subs, I could be persuaded, but I would need a good argument. I think I need a good argument, too. I, I, I really like the five-person aspect. Um, and as Christine said, yeah, you know, at the district level, well, not the district, in non-virtual quizzing, there are many rules governing substitutions. And one thing that I glazed, glazed over by not mentioning it, mentioning it at all is I don't like almost any of the substitution rules. Like, I'm totally fine with only subs during a timeout. I think it makes a lot of sense. But quizzers having to sit out three questions and then a quizzed-out quizzer that leaves the quiz can't come back, to me, these seem, like, very artificial. And um, I'm sure at some point there is a desire for to, like, kind of in, push coaches towards having a mix of their quizzers on the stage at any given time. But I don't think the rule book should be mandating um, coach um, strategic decisions. Um, and so I think the, that a quizzer sitting out three questions after being subbed out and a quizzed out quizzer not being able to remain, I think those should just be gone. And I guess I'm stealing thunder from a future episode, but um, it is relevant to this topic. The rule should remain that when the question type is it cannot make subs after that time. Oh, absolutely. 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 Yeah, because that, that would utter chaos would ensue otherwise. That's part of the fun of it, too, is like, all right, you go in. Now let's hope your specialty is coming up, or maybe not. I mean, <laughs> like, I don't know, that kind of chance element and, and it goes into the strategy, and I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, there's definitely a little probab uh, probabilistic curve you have to run in your head right before you do a sub or something. And then there are times at the very, very end of a quiz where you can know something for sure, which is a different kind of fun. Yeah, indeed. Well, Scott, do you want to move on to the next bullet there? Yeah, so this is an interesting one, um, and I want to tread care tread carefully, but it's um, two teams or more than one team from the same district weirdness is what I'm calling it. And this is, um, like at internationals, I don't know when they started allowing a, a single district to have more than one team, um, but it was it that way when you quizzed at all, Christine, or was it only one per? Um, I actually had a hard time hearing most of that question. Can you repeat it? When you quizzed um, at internationals, could districts bring more than one team? Oh, no. When I quizzed at internationals, the districts could only bring one team. Gotcha. So it's, it's I think actually I was one of the very first. I think, uh, Scott, I think when you went to internationals, maybe it was your first time or maybe it was your second time. And it was when I was your coach. I think that, that was one of the very first times in PNW that we took two teams. That was the first time in PNW, and that would have been 2004. And I think you finished up right around 99 or 98, Christine. So it was somewhere in that time period, 
99 to 2003 that probably it was first allowed at the internationals level. Um, so right around 20 years. Um, and when I talk about I'm weirdness... I'm very old. I've been in 96. Oh, but still, like in that very late 90s, very early 2000s, somewhere in there is probably where the change happened. Um, but when I talk about weirdness, um, you you know, there is a challenge that happened at internationals that had two teams from the same district, and that was part... It, partially complicated things and partially was the basis, but um, it's about something larger than that because if you get down to the end of a quiz and you have two teams from the same district, then you no longer can be assured of independent incentives because otherwise every team has like, they want their individuals to do well and they want their team to do well and they are going to execute on that you know, they have that same motivation through the end of every quiz, and it's not different quiz to quiz. But as soon as you get two teams from the same district in a quiz, that can potentially change, right? You are definitely going to have toss-ups with just those two teams. Um, you are definitely going to have toss-ups with one team where their outcome in the quiz is decided, um, but how they perform on that quiz might affect how their the other team from their district does in that quiz. And to me, it's it doesn't feel right because... I want everyone to have the exact same incentives all the way throughout. Um, and I think this introduces some weirdness to it. Um, and one thing that I'm reminded of that is a little bit related is there was a quiz that I was, I don't think I was head coaching, but I was helping coach at Great West. And it came down to question 20. Um, and of the three teams in it, two teams had an ability to win the quiz. And the third team was the team that I was coaching from PNW. And we jumped and got that question right. And after the quiz, and one of the other coaches came up and talked to me and was like, I'm just curious why you did that. Like we kind of have, it's kind of understood in our district that you don't do that if you're out of the quiz. And I was like, well, individual averages are still in play. And even if they weren't like a correct question means a lot mentally to people. And I just don't think any team should assume that any other team is not going to jump just because their um, placement in the quiz is determined. Um, cause this, this, this might've actually been a, um, a quiz where placement was all that mattered and scoring was not, which would have, which I guess it doesn't necessarily mean that individual averages are out of play at that point. But like, that was just one example of there, there are districts that feel that you should hold back in that scenario. And I'm just like, I would expect every team to keep trying to get every question. Um, and those sorts of extraneous things shouldn't impact, but I'm just curious if, um, any of you have thoughts on that, but more specifically on um, two or more teams from the same district potentially competing at the same time? There is, I think, an element to which, even when we're talking about teams from the same district, people really want their team to win. So I think for the most part, it's not a problem, except, as you said, Scott, when it gets right down to the nitty-gritty, you're going to want the other team from your district to win over the third team. And that does create as you said, interesting incentives. I think the, the particular problem you might run into is is if the team that's off, that's that, that's not a part of the other two teams' district, gets an error, then the remaining two teams, one of them can just let the other team get a full jump on it uh, to get the question right, that sure fire. And I've thought about this a little bit before, and in my opinion, this is sort of a completely unavoidable aspect of a three-team format. I can't think of any way we could do the rules such that this wouldn't be an issue. Well, let's take another example at this time where all three teams are on different districts, but it's the finals and it's a first to two wins. 
Well, in this case, the both of the teams that didn't win the first quiz, for all intents and purposes, might as well be from the same district because they both have the mutually assured goal of not letting that other team win. If it comes down to it on question 20A, if it's a toss-up between you know, both of the teams that didn't win the first quiz, then the team that is closer and can overtake the team that won the first quiz, they're going to be allowed to just jump on the entire question to get it right. You know, and, and, and that might not even have to be spoken in, you know, in a timeout, but that's just the strategically smart thing to do, even though it doesn't make sense uh, within that quiz, it makes sense within the broader, like, finals round. So I think it's a similar issue that is unrelated to teams from the same district that is just necessary as part of the three-team format. It's similar, but the thing is, both teams have an independent self-interest that just happens to be shared. So, like... Even if they want the same thing, it's because of how it benefits them and not how it benefits the other, right? And that's that's what I see as the difference. Yeah, it's different, but I think it's similar in terms of, like, the problem with it is just baked in to the fact that we don't do 1v1s. We do 1v1v1, um, which sure, I yeah. love about quizzing. I wouldn't seek to change it. I think it's just kind of, is there a way to mitigate that? I'm not sure, but I think no matter what, we have to face that issue. Well, and it shows up at the district level. I mean, certainly you have, you know, especially very large churches with many, many, many teams. We have one of those in PNW where you can have all three teams be from the same church, and that's not terribly uncommon at all. Sure, but I don't, I don't see a big problem in that. And I mean, take Great West as an example. It pretty much happens every single Great West that you have at least one prelim with three West Can teams, at least one prelim with all, with three. CMD teams and at least one with three PNW teams, and the, if you look at the scores, they're exactly in line with what you would expect. You know, like no team is just sitting back and letting you know letting an, a 100% accuracy quiz happen. I just think when you get into very specific situations, which most often will occur at internationals with high stakes, um, high scrutiny, you can see the misaligned incentives come to play. And I can just see if I'm a quiz master and one team has 200 points and one team has 10. <laughs> You know, and and the t- and they've all been jumping fast the whole quiz, but the team that's out of it just like doesn't jump and lets a full like situation quote go out. Um, I don't know what I would do in that scenario, you know, because I'd want to foul the, the entire team that sat out, but that benefits the situation. <laughs> if you know, it would create right. a, it would it would basically create a one team toss up, which I shouldn't be making a ruling because of the outcome that I want to create. Um, but I would want to foul that entire team because I think that that's against the spirit of quizzing to just sit so that the other team from your district does well. There can, I mean, while we're being theoretical <laughs> about it a little bit, there's other circumstances this can come to play where like there's mismatched incentives. I've seen instances where captains of opposing teams in prelims who are friends will challenge on behalf of each other in potentially spurious ways. <laughs> uh, like, I didn't think they were great challenges. And, you know, like, that's fine. That's their right to do that. There's no rule against it. But, you know, I have noticed that even though these teams are technically supposed to be opposed to each other, maybe the two captains on these two different teams w- both want to make the internationals team together. So they both want each other's individual averages to be high, regardless of the team outcomes. So there's always going to be some mismatched incentives uh, and I think that's maybe just the name of the game. You know, if you're unlucky enough to be the team that isn't the other two teams, then just make sure you're ahead enough by question 19 or whatever, you know, so that they can't overtake you with, you know, with that kind of a strategy. 
overall, I think the benefits of being able to have two teams go to internationals outweighs any of those weird strategy situations you could come into. Um, if you have enough kids that know all the material and they're excited and to be able to go to internationals and just have that excitement be contagious and they bring it back to the district. I mean, I just think the benefits of that are so huge that um, it's, it's definitely worth it if you, if you can take two teams to be able to do that. Absolutely. And I wish that the logistics were different such that internationals could be spread more around the entire country, but districts are just not um, equally dispersed across the United States and Canada. And, you know, you have to kind of hold internationals where you have opportunities to hold it. Um, but definitely if it's ever in your backyard, like as it was for PNW when it was in Spokane, like we could bring two teams very cheaply, um, which is going to benefit the district just by having that experience and excitement. Yeah. Having returning internationals veterans is huge for b building up just the general excitement and, and talent and skill level of the district. Absolutely, because it shows the quizzers who go, you know, even if they weren't great enough what, or whatever is, you know, being used as the criteria to select the teams, even if they didn't make that first team's cut, just getting to see the best of quizzing puts a fire in your heart for like, wow, look at how good all these other teams are. Look at how fun this was. Like, I got to make it again next year, so I got to make sure I'm in the top five because I don't know if we'll bring a second team. I think that really that boosts the district. And, and that's why I love that meets like Great West and Winter Nationals exist, because I think the competitive level is very, very close to internationals. And I did pretty good at, at the district level, but it wasn't until the first time that I went to Great West or it was called Calgary then. But like the first time I went there, it was like my eyes were opened and I, I just saw new things and new possibilities. And you just want to, if there are quizzers that that would be eye opening to them, you want to introduce as many of them as possible to it. Yes, indeed. Well, on our last topic here, I want to kind of throw out a question. Uh, this is sort of a, a series of topics or ideas that are all sort of relate to each other. And I want to kind of draw this. I know you guys were all quizzers, but I kind of want to draw this out of the world of the quizzer and into the world of the coach. Um, talk a little bit about how you dial in as a coach and how you help quizzers dial in. Uh, it's sort of a sweet spot between the precision of jumping, jump speed, accuracy of targets, accuracy of answering. How do you coach to those sorts of things? And how do you deal with that at the different levels, say, you know, district versus Great West versus uh, internationals? Well, I think at the district level, the precision of jumping matters a lot less because um, the jumps are slower on average. And you... There's less of an accuracy and scoring difference from jumping at um, three syllables versus three and a half. Um, and for a lot of quizzers, you just, you're just trying to help them win a jump. Um, and so you're often um, not even talking in syllable jump speeds. You're kind of talking in more general fast and slow or I've been watching you jump. You need to s jump a little bit faster than you've been going. Um, and so you definitely have to tailor your, your coaching to what's necessary. Once you get to internationals or great West, I think of them fairly synonymously. Um, precision is the precision of your timing is the name of the game, right? Um, if you're jumping on interrogatives, you could be jumping at one speed and be a computer and you would get 25% right. And you jump a quarter of a syllable slower and that computer gets 85% of them. Right. And you know, that's the, that sweet spot is, um, have you dug into a study list to know what that jump speed is for this question type? 
um, and then can you hit it? So those are the the three the three I guess four components are figuring out what that speed is for a question type, um, having the ability to jump at that type, um, and I guess this is only three now that I'm talking through it. And the third one is can you get it right at that speed? And so two of the things you can do before a meet, which is figuring out what the speed is and then studying to be able to get them right at that speed. And then once you're at a meet, it's can I execute at that precision? And each of those is its different challenge. And that's what makes it fun. I find that at the district level, uh, especially the majority of the prelim quizzes, the kids can jump on recognition for the most part, unless they're in a hard quiz against another team um, that's, ends up in the top nine but um for a lot of those quizzes especially when we don't know what the other quizzers have known it's we can start pretty slow and and when you recognize it jump uh which is very different from internationals and uh and the great west it's where it is much more a timing and you're jumping um just to get that that spot that Scott was talking about where you're going to get the majority of the questions right and if someone wants to beat you then they are going to get it wrong <laughs> and that's the sw- the sweet spot that you have to find yeah well I, I'm in agreement with uh, both Scott and Christine I think I would add on the internationals level this is just a little tip that I do and of course great West as well um, I have this phrase I use where I just say put a little edge on your jump like just give it a little edge um, so that word edge is what I use. And I guess what I mean by it is that I don't necessarily want them to think about jumping a whole syllable faster. I just want them to change their mental focus during that question type. So maybe we start the quiz out with saying, hey, you know, let's get three syllables on interrogatives. One and a half is fine on MAs, you know, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Everybody, every quizzer on the team has their own individual strategies based on how competent and comfortable they are with each type. But then depending on how the quiz goes, I might say to one quizzer, like, hey, we already have two quizzers who got a question. You can get a third quizzer bonus. So the next time your specialty comes up, put some edge on it. In other words, like, be a little less afraid to error. Like, ensure you get it. And I think that phrase has worked really well. I think it's just a really useful mental phrase for like, okay, I got to put a little edge on it. Um, And I don't know, it might have come from like the idea of being on the edge of your seat or something. But when I was a quizzer, I thought through similar things like, okay, well, I can't get less syllables than the other quizzers because I need to get the question right. But I also need to get the question. And so I just switched a little thing in my mental focus that went from, hey, I need to jump fast and try to get questions to like, oh, I need to get this question. And that's the coaching advice I've given at the really difficult levels where everybody is jumping just within a hair's breadth of, of uh, time difference from one another. I, I really like that. You know, the best way that I could instruct quizzers to get to that was say, we're jumping a roughly a quarter syllable faster, knowing that that was that level of precision is often hard to like actually hit, but it was kind of pushing them to do that thing. But this is where coaching can be an art, right? Um, it might be more helpful to, to have something non- um, specific and objective, like, you know, give it a little edge, um, that would be far more beneficial than something um, rigid-like, right? And so it's it's figuring out what's going to be most meaningful to your quizzers. And I think that would be a fun thing to discuss about, right? Um, in general, I don't think that your jumping speed should change question one to question 20 very much, um, unless you're in a very specific scenario. 
Um, but there are many situations where you might want to alter it a little bit. You know, maybe you're, it's question 15 and you have um, fewer than two team errors. Or maybe um, you need a third person or um, things of that nature. Um, and you want to alter the, the target jumping speed just a little. And so those sorts of um, non-objective phrases I find, I find interesting. I've never thought of that before. I think the thing about right. like a quarter syllable is just that the the difference in jumping speed is so minute that given the average question at the quizmaster's reading pace, you're not going to get any different information. But there might be rare circumstances where a weird word or a weird phrase will give you less, but they're they're rare. And so I think that might be kind of what I'm getting at with the edge thing is like jump in such a way that if it's a normal question, you'll get the same amount of information, but you'll still get it right. Because there's those little quirks with, with syllables. They're not all created equal in mm-hmm. <laughs> different lengths. Indeed. Well, we are a little bit over time, but very interesting uh, series of topics. And of course, we could probably talk for another hour on some of the details. But I wanted to say thank you very much to our special guests, Christine and Jeremy, for joining us for this episode. But before we exit, I want to, of course, remind everybody that they should email us their questions and comments and thoughts and whatever at iq at cbqz.org. And... Uh, in addition to this particular podcast, uh, actually, there's a new podcast that's uh, just out on the wire. I have not heard it yet, but I'm assuming it's going to be fairly good. So, Jeremy, do you want to talk a little bit about your podcast? Certainly. Well, it is fairly good, Griffin. I, I, I would agree. Um, so, former <laughs> quizzer Jonathan Van Schenk of and I um, have just started recording a podcast. We're calling it the John 315 podcast as opposed to john 316 and um yeah so we're just two former quizzers and we're looking at the context of famous bible verses so hence the name so we have two episodes out already on spotify and itunes and i believe google should be approving us soon um and we have one on matthew and one actually on hebrews so it's very related to the material quizzers have already been studying and uh, we just like to chat about the context of famous verses, see how maybe the verses have been misinterpreted, or maybe there's things people are missing uh, about these verses. And uh, we think it's a lot of fun, and uh, I, I'm assuming you'll have a link on the show notes, Griffin, and, I, and I, I also can post the link on Slack for any quizzers who are interested in joining us. Very cool. Very cool. Always uh, always happy to see more Bible podcasting things, especially if the, the podcasts are from uh, former quizzers. So it's always a good thing. So, of course, in addition to emailing us at iq at cbqz.org, you can also follow us on Twitter, and you should. Our account is at InsideQuizzing. And you can chat with uh, Scott and myself and actually several other people live most of the time. Uh, on our Slack channel, uh, Pound Inside Dash Quizzing on the Bible Quizzing Slack forum. Very much encourage everyone to uh, participate in that if they are so interested. And on that note, I will say thank you to everyone. And thank you, Scott, Christine, and Jeremy. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for having us on. Thank you.